This is Farm Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Julia Guimarães, standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. This month's program looks at young people working in agriculture. Coming up, we hear from Paul Winters, Associate Vice President at IFAD, with the latest on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on agriculture in developing countries. Also, we have news from IFAD's agribusiness hubs with Raul Antal. And then we speak with three young agripreneurs, Zainarin from India, Eli from Kenya, and Mirna from the Dominican Republic. They'll give you their insights on starting a business in agriculture and what it means to be part of the rural youth. We will also take you all the way to Kiribati in the Pacific Ocean to meet with Danieta Apisai to see how they're doing. And then to Fiji, where IFAD's Recipes for Change chef Lance Cito talks Pacific Islanders and their relationship with native foods. Our final stop will be in Brazil, where organic farmer and secretary of the Intercontinental Network of Organic Farmers Organizations, Thales Mendonça, will talk to us about how he's carrying on with his farming business throughout the pandemic. And Chef Bela Gil will also be joining us in Brazil to share some interesting stories about her work with child nutrition and her views on the protection of smallholder producers. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts.ifad.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. Six months have passed since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Rural communities all around the world are finding different ways to cope with the crisis effect on health and the economy. IFAD's Associate Vice President, Paul Winters, told us about how IFAD's priorities are changing under the current rapidly evolving situation. Because of the COVID situation, we're seeing a broad shock across the system. Um, that shock is having an effect on the demand for, for food and agricultural products in general as well as having effects on the way markets go in the supply of food. Um, so what we are trying to do is to address these immediate concerns while keeping uh, our eyes on the long-term development objectives. So to address those immediate concerns, we're focusing on seeing how we can support the provision of inputs, seeds, fertilizer, et cetera, um, how we can potentially support the provision of liquidity, so finance, uh, cash, uh, that types of things. Um, how we can help facilitate uh, markets functioning. Um, and when markets aren't functioning, are there alternatives we can do to help small-scale producers? Uh, whether we can provide some digital agriculture that would provide support. Um, so what we're doing is shifting our priorities to address those short-term needs, but while at the same time thinking of the long-term development objectives. So we're not a humanitarian agency, but Uh, you can't achieve long-term objectives if you have these short-term problems. So you have to address those short-term uh, problems and reprioritize those first and then go back to longer-term obje term objectives. What do you foresee will be some of our challenges and priorities in a post-COVID scenario? 
Well, the biggest challenge right now is the uncertainty because we're trying to plan ahead, but it's hard to know exactly what the effects will be. Um, if you look at the estimates of the effects just on poverty, uh, a month ago, they were saying that there might be increases of 20, 25 million people in poverty. Now it's already jumped up to estimates as much as 80 million and even higher. Um, so, so knowing what's going to be happening and what the future holds makes it very hard to, to plan. Um, then on top of that, we have to, uh, after the re recovery period, we have to reactivate rural areas and help them build up resilience again. Um, and so it's a big challenge to know what exactly we should be doing in the post-COVID situation. Um, if markets aren't functioning, how do we get them working again? Uh, how do we ensure people get inputs? How do we ensure that they have outputs? You know, 70% of EFAD projects are value chain projects. How do we ensure that those value chains are still working and they can still get the benefit of reaching markets? Um, and this is really important, right? Uh, before the crisis, 80% of food was purchased on the open market in Africa and Asia. So that's where people get their income. Uh, and so we have to figure out how to make sure those markets go back to functioning and the small scale producers we work with and the, the rural poor that we work with are able to take advantage of those opportunities. So it's really a, a challenge of um, making sure that we can get back to where we were and the, the, the opportunities still exist that we saw prior to the crisis. Asia and the Pacific region initially took the hardest hits from the pandemic. Is this the case and why? Is it likely to continue as the most affected region? They took the hit because the, it was the first place in which we saw the COVID affecting any economies. Um, and so we saw the health effects and then, you know, with China taking the lead to, to shut down, you obviously have economic consequences for doing that. And those consequences are in urban areas and rural areas everywhere. Then a number of other countries followed suit as it moved through the Asian region before it came to Europe and elsewhere. Um, and so those initial effects are not surprising, but it's, it's spread around the world now. And the, the economic consequences are global. I mean, the IMF is predicting uh, economic slowdown of about 7%, which means the global contraction might be as much as 5% because before we were grow growing at a 2% rate. So if you have that kind of contraction at the global level, that will affect everyone. Um, and then, of course, when you have these kind of effects, it's the least resilient that are, are the most affected. So what we expect to see is areas that are vulnerable, such as South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, to be more likely to be affected than those that are a little more developed, like in East Asia and other parts of the world. Um, and so we, we guess, and even the, the projections are that the effects will be larger in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia than more broadly across the Asian Pacific region. And finally, this month's episode is looking at IFAD's work with youth. How were they affected in particular by the current situation? And how will IFAD's work with youth make them more resilient? Youth start out uh, with a set of challenges, right? They have less access to land, less access to finance, less access to inputs. Their jobs tend to be uh, more informal than formal. So, for example, uh, youth are 40% more likely uh, than, than other adults to be in inf the informal sector or casual labor within rural areas. So they start with a whole set of challenges. They're entering into the market. They're often the first to lose jobs because they're the least experienced. And so we, we see this kind of economic downturn driven by the, the COVID situation. 
they're the most likely to be uh, affected, along with others such as women, indigenous populations. But though those that face constraints to begin with, those constraints become even stronger. Um, and so what we need to do is make sure that there are broader opportunities in rural areas. If you don't develop markets uh, and get them working again, then youth can't take advantage of them. But we also need to make sure when we do that, that we're conscious of the fact uh, that, that youth are in a particularly precarious position and that they need special uh, approaches uh, to help them overcome those constraints that I mentioned and to help build up their resilience. Thanks to Paul Winters, IFAD Associate Vice President. Up next, Raul Antal from IFAD's youth team. How will the COVID pandemic affect youth in particular, and why is innovation key in helping them curb its economic impacts? Raul Antal works with IFAD's youth team. He told me about the current youth labor scenario and how the pandemic could aggravate an already difficult situation and what we can do about it. I think if I have to start at one point, it should be, you know, we had the latest ILO report on global trends for youth in 2020. Plus this report sort of came out literally just before the pandemic hit and took full scale. And one of the things that the report highlights is that the youth labor market situation around the world is just being declining. Even worse, we have one in five of the world's youth who are not in employment, education, or training. Now, this is a score called NEAT, which means that they're neither gaining experience in the labor market, nor receiving an income from work, nor enhancing their education and skills. And in particular, young women outnumber young men in this category in a ratio of almost two to one. Now, COVID has come at a time uh, where we've already reached this really vulnerable point with uh, in engaging with young people. And for those young people who are already employed, especially young women, they are particularly vulnerable because some of them are employed in the informal economy. So what's more is that younger youth are at risk of increased poverty of being exposed to things like, you know, additional exacerbated issues, child labor, sexual exploitation, child marriage. And as a spin-off of this crisis, a lot of these young migrants are also making a return to rural areas in some countries. And such underemployed and informal livelihoods have been threatened, they turn towards their rural homes, which may increase that, you know, an already saturated labor market in these rural communities. So in essence, the pandemic has potentially, you know, exacerbated all these issues. But the same holds true past employment, even in the education realm. Somewhere about the end of March, early April, the UNESCO had announced that about 165 countries have implemented nationwide closures of educational institutions. And in total, this is affecting about a billion children and youth around the world. A lot of advanced uh, countries have taken towards uh, e-learning. But this is not the case for many of uh, communities who do not have that access and that privilege. So with these pro protracted closures, it sort of becomes a bigger challenge to ensure that students return to school once they reopen. So vulnerable and low-income groups like smallholders, food vendors, and especially women and youth would be disproportionately naturally affected. So as you rightly pointed out, the question becomes, how do we respond to these exacerbated challenges? So more specifically on youth, there needs to be some sort of, you know, when we look in the context of the short-term engagement and this mid-long-term focused on recovery, I suppose what we really need to take into consideration is this question of innovation and garnering outside-the-box thinking. And technology sounds like an ideal avenue. Digital technologies allow public employment services to overcome limited resources. 
and eventually they provide access to hard to reach areas including those living in remote areas but of course we need to factor in this issue of context because perhaps it makes more sense to go back to old school measures of how we engage something as simple as radio services and we are already seeing interventions like this in in places like kenya where education is continuing through radio but it is very much the subject to country and context one of the key words you mentioned was innovation how is ifat's youth team supporting innovation at this time you know one of the very interesting things that ifat is in the process of starting up at the beginning of this year was tailored towards youth employment through a concept called the agri business hubs quite simply a hub is kind of like a school where the students come in they learn a bit of the basics of everything but they but then they get into a specialized training on something that calls to them and we set out the idea of these hubs with the understanding that this could be about what you want and then consider what works in that context so we've seen a number of interventions play out when it comes to youth engagement but we want to go slightly beyond and challenge ourselves to find a dynamic and differentiated approach of youth engagement so the agri business concept is simply based on nurturing young people through an agri business experiential learning and it it kind of channels itself through three main streams the first is market driven production which is really looking at you know land access mechanisms innovative water management soilless techniques and overcoming drudgery the second is on agro industry and this is really focused on post harvest management processing value addition input and output market linkages and options and last was the goods and services which are key and this really is about financial inclusion you know innovative extension services and things like that so in a way it looks at all the nodes within an agri business to offer a wide array of opportunity now part of the implementation of this heavily relies on innovation and in particular the program throws light on issues that address the nexus between clean rural energy and icts that really need to encompass this whole question of how do we innovate in these sort of agri business nodes now to push to over just a few months of training the program also allows for a committed mentorship program in a post hub phase and this is like the third phase of the sort of agri business program and the hub is kind of centrally pillared on this idea of fostering partnerships within the broader farming community and this includes a vast array of relevant actors such as agri business enterprises rural financial institutions academicians so say when you're done with your quote unquote schooling these agri business enterprises will start to ab- absorb these young interns who have graduated from this program and partnerships will be fostered with them and particularly today in the context of covid we are sort of you know changing the cogs and wheels in some ways we are best positioned now to 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 recalibrate ourselves towards focusing on these icts and digitalizations which we always consider to be sort of the core aspects in terms of innovation within Uh, these hub streams. We'll be hearing more from Raul later in the program when he addresses the question of youth empowerment. To learn more about IFAD's work with rural youth, visit ifad.org/en/youth. You can also listen to our talk with IFAD's youth lead technical specialist Tom Anyangi on episode 3 of Farms Food Future. Up next We spoke to three young agripreneurs about their businesses and challenges. 
Designer Ring Ankand is the founder of Hill Wild Enterprise, chocolate producer which adds Indian spices and textures to its delicious products. She is also one of IFAD's youth champions and participated in this year's Governing Council as a youth panelist. In a recent interview, she told us that connectivity was one of the challenges posed to Hill Wild. Have things improved since our last talk, or is Zynarin still struggling with connectivity? Connectivity is still an issue, it's still a problem, a challenge, but we have found our way to at least transport the goods that we want to sell in market. But again, that is a very tedious process, but collectively uh, we need a lot of better roads for that matter, and better freight and also logistic support where we can uh, transport our agriculture produce, which doesn't uh, cost us a lot because this is one of the main cost factor. So these are the things that the government have to improve. And if all young agriculture entrepreneurs, the agripreneurs, could hear you right now, what would you tell them? Agribusiness, agripreneurs, sounds like a long journey, but we have to remember that we control the future. That is the message I want to give. You can listen to our first interview with Sainarin in Episode 3 of Farms Food Future. We've also been talking to Mirna Ortiz, Financial Manager of the Association of Young Producers of Monte Plata Pineapple in the Dominican Republic. Mirna told us a bit about how she acquired the skills necessary to become the Association's Financial Manager. I'm the Administrative and Financial Manager of the Association of Young Producers of Pineapple. I'm in charge of the entire administration and accounting team of the institution, a group of young people too. I gained all this experience in my professional studies, but also through experience, through training in academic subjects provided by the Pro Rural Investment Plan. We have grown a lot in this area, and we're sharing that knowledge to the work team and to anyone who needs it. And how did the Pro Rural Project help the association? It helped us. It was a spearhead, because it allowed us to create a project through training, through a business plan, infrastructure, machinery, that allowed us to develop a whole work plan that led us to be what we are today. I think that without ProRural, we wouldn't have achieved what we have until today, which is to go from sowing to exporting, including the added value of the product we sow, which is pineapple. And do you think the Monte Plata business model can be replicated to help other organizations in future generations? We are already doing it. We are working together with other organizations that have not been fortunate enough to receive IFAD's help directly. What we do in our institution, we're sharing it through training, through the processes that we have created. We're helping other institutions to grow. Because the idea is not to keep the knowledge, but to share it with other young people to create a better world. Now, let's hear from Ellie Matendi, co-owner of the Matendi Holstein Farm of Dairy Products. Ellie began his career as a small-scale milk producer and is now also a cow breeder, dairy farmer, and breeding trainer. He told us about the growth of his business in the past couple of years. 
Okay, I developed my business uh, through the trainings that I received from the smallholder dairy commercialization program. They took us for farm tours uh, throughout the country and also gave us a lot of trainings on uh, how to manage uh, my financial actually my financial part of the business. And so uh, over the years we've been uh, growing slowly by slowly uh, to where we are today. What role do programs such as the SDCP play in the development of new rural businesses such as the Holstein Farm? Uh, the smallholder dairy commercialization program, in my case, uh, really did capacity build me. Through the, I mean, they opened my eyes because the eyes, they are the ones who showed me the full potential that is in dairy by visiting other farmers uh, who are doing better than me. And so they gave me that, uh, you know, they, they gave me that fire inside me to want to do more. And what are your plans for the future of your business? Okay, I, I plan to expand my business. Uh, currently, I have 14 animals, having sold some of them last year. But uh, I plan in the future to have at least 50 animals on my four-acre piece of land. And finally, what is one piece of advice you would give to young men and women who decide to go into agriculture today? Just do it. Just do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. Because there is money in agriculture. Only if, if you do it right, there is a lot of money in agriculture. Thank you to Zainarin, Midna, and Eli. Remember to stay tuned for part two of our interview with Raul Antal, coming up soon. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Julia Guimarães, standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. As we continue to chase around the globe, we're now off to the Pacific to hear from Danieta Apisai, representative of the Kiribati Outer Islands Food and Water Project. The Kiribati population relies heavily on food imports and is growing through a rough patch since the coronavirus pandemic slowed down the movement of goods around the world. The local government is encouraging the population to invest their time in agriculture in the hope that they will depend less on imports in the future and more on locally produced food. Danieta Apisai works with the Kiribati Outer Islands Food and Water Project. She talks about some of the immediate effects of the COVID pandemic on the e-Kiribati. The effect of the COVID uh, pandemic is that there is a lot of fear. Mostly there is a fear of uh, losing jobs because we're already seeing, especially in the tourism sector, like um, hotels closing down because of lack of um, guests. There is also a, a, a huge amount of fear for about the population being wiped out to, due to this, uh, if ever, the COVID-19 gets to Kiribati. First, because there's no, um, well, there's a, a real lack of medical provision facilities. There's also the fear of lack of food supplies. If like the, everything is closed, the borders are closed and you can't import food anymore. Uh, so the lack of food security. So those are the immediate things that uh, we can see. And so going into agriculture in Kiribati, in the past decades, uh, why have people drifted away from agriculture? What made farming so unpopular? Well, agriculture, agriculture is really an activity that's not very easy in Kiribati. 
the soil is just not good for agriculture. We have very poor soil. We have um, limited freshwater supply. We, yeah, those kind of things. But in the past, people had no choice. They, in order to survive, they have to live off the land. Now, when we started imported, importing food, like from overseas, the people started to realize that, you know, importing food means they don't need to work so hard in agriculture. Like, for example, one of the traditional staple foods was the giant swamp taro. To do that, you had to dig like a pit so many feet into the ground just to get to the freshwater lands. And then you needed like, you know, to, to ensure that when the salt water, the salt water intrusion, what do you do to, to ensure that your, your taro survives, you know? So it, it was really hard work uh, doing agriculture. So I think that's the main thing that, that has made farming so unpopular in Kiribati. The fact that it's more convenient now to consume our imported foods, and, and, and that, is, that is why we have the heavy reliance on um, imported foods, then, you know, to, to, to survive uh, off of the land. And so you mentioned the the relationship between ikiribas and breadfruit and taro, which are indigenous foods products. This relationship has changed, right? So what do you think are the effects of this trend on local youth in regards to nutrition and also employment? Well, on the local youth, in, in, in relation to nutrition, definitely we can see that our local youth their preference now is for imported food, right, over uh, local food. So the trend on the, the nutrition is that we can, we know that they're not getting the proper nutrition they need. Because if you compare uh, rice uh, compared to breadfruit or even taro, uh, you don't get the nutrition from the rice that you would get from the, the, the taro or, or the breadfruit. So we know for sure that our local youth are, are, not, are not getting the nutrition that they require or that they need. Uh, when we look at it this way, that they're not getting the nutrition, then in terms of the employment, um, it means that they're not getting the opportunity uh, that they would be able to get if they're well nourished and, and are able to like perform well in, in, in whatever areas they need to perform in order to get employment. And can you tell us a bit more about the Kiribati Outer Islands Food and Water Project and its main objectives? Um, the overall goal is to improve the livelihood, right, of all the communities in the outer islands, so the rural communities, through uh, improved nutrition and uh, better or secure access to clean drinking water. We promote agriculture and engage households in go uh, home gardening as well as providing uh, the secure access to fresh water through um, construction of uh, rainwater harvesting systems. These are promoted through uh, training of uh, agriculture skills like composting, seed sowing, marketing, you know, and especially in Koifab, we promote the cultivation of our own traditional plants. The reason being that these are the ones that are mostly better suited to our climate already, like they are already uh, well adjusted to the brackish water, um, maybe the hot weather. So we try to take them back to our own traditional 
traditional crops. Through the training, we provide um, what they lack uh, in terms of knowledge on how to do uh, home gardening and agriculture activities. Um, we also provide them a system with the tools that they may not have. And, and, and yes, and then through uh, the construction of uh, rainwater harvesting systems. The project works with Kiribati youth from schooling to employment. Local youth is prioritized when it comes to hiring staff for the projects on the island. They also motivate the youth to get involved with home gardening. Schools are an essential part of the project as they help spread gardening advice and native recipes through the curriculum to both students and parents. Thank you to Danieta Apisai who joined us from Kiribati. You're listening to Farms Food Future and I'm Julia Guimarães standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. Up next, our Recipes for Change chef Lancido on Pacific Islanders' food tradition and adaptation to climate change. In episode 7, Fiji-based chef Lancido shared with us a delicious lockdown-friendly recipe for chicken and leafy green soup which you can cook from the comfort of your home. Now, this award-winning chef tells us how Fijians are dealing with the COVID pandemic. In terms of my work, obviously, it's, it's had a huge impact, just as all, all, all the restaurants around the world have been impacted. However, I think at the end of the day, it, it's forced all of us, and it'll force the consumer and the farmer to just rethink about nutrition and rethink about local produce. Our farmers um, are doing okay because uh, the majority is supplying the local market. So our markets are still full. The farmers probably won't make as much money, but things still grow. So I think, I think at the end of the day, the current crisis will have a global effect in us thinking about food, where our food comes from, and nutritional food in general. And also in a recent interview, you said that the longevity and survival of this race, being the Pacific Islanders, is one of the most important tasks for IFAD and other world bodies. What can Pacific Islanders teach other people about nutrition and their relationship with indigenous foods? The Pacific Islanders have this advantage in that they are still intricately connected to their food and their culture. In terms of what the rest of the world can learn, it's about how these foods, how the nutritional foods sustain the Pacific Islanders and all indigenous races, how it sustained them for thousands of years without disease, without non-communicable disease entering in, into the population. So the lesson, I think, is that our connection and understanding to fresh produce, uh, fresh meats, unadulterated foods is connected to our health. It's about understanding seasonal foods, how nature provides certain foods throughout the year for medicinal reasons. There's certain times of year that there's certain fruits that are high in vitamin C. They become available and they understand that there's a reason why those particular fruits and vegetables are available at certain times of year. They're medicine. That's one of the most important lessons that the Indigenous people um, can still share with the rest of us. 
do you think that Pacific Islanders' traditional knowledge systems about food and nutrition are being threatened, and why? Well, look, of course, their, their livelihoods and their understanding of food has been threatened. Western food, Western processed food, dominates a lot of these countries because it's uh, cheap. Of course, it's more tasty because it's filled with all sorts of artificial um, treats, I guess you could say in a lot of ways. So those processed foods have influenced the islands greatly. I mean, you look at the NCDs now in the region, it's either one in two or one in three in the population that's affected by some sort of dietary effect on their health. What is the role of, one, the government, to international organizations such as the IFAD and the local populations when it comes to protecting native crops, encouraging the consumption of local foods, and increasing the resilience of the land to climate change impacts? It's all about education, isn't it? It's about educating the local population about the connection to food and nutrition. It's been difficult to combat the whole NCD. It's been difficult because of the, of the knowledge and the loss of knowledge, I guess. And to combat that, we really need to, to go back to basics. But I think to re-educate this new younger generation, and it starts right at the very start of, of, of having a child, understanding to not give that child the taste of these processed foods, it's, it's kind of a bit late for adults now because they've already had a taste of the processed foods. They've, they've had a taste of the salt and the sugar and the oils. So I think where we can tackle it, where it would be most, more efficient to tackle it is to educate the very, very young. So the government and NGOs all have this role in re-educating to local populations are reconnecting them to their nutritional past. You visited an IFAD project in Tonga. What were your impressions of the solutions to climate change being developed by the local communities? Um, what impressed me the most about the Tongans there were that they were adapting fast. I saw there that they were, they were clever enough to keep planting keep moving their farms to areas where that they still could grow. So despite the whole problem with, with rising sea levels and, and salinity and all that sort of thing, the Pacific Island people are, have adapted quite well. But yes, it's going to take a global effort to help change that. But I've been amazed by all the communities throughout the South Pacific having to change, having to adapt quickly. And you have just recently opened your new contemporary Fijian restaurant, Canoe, whose values are sustainability, seasonality, exploration, and preservation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The whole idea with this new restaurant, I guess it was a culmination of my whole 11-year journey in the South Pacific, learning about nutrition, learning about the connection between food and health, and then not seeing that in our tourism in general. So it became frustrating for me that I had this knowledge that South Pacific cuisine is not considered all that high, I guess, in the culinary world. So I wanted to prove the point that it can be and it could be. And despite opening in the middle of the coronavirus, um, I think we've been able to prove this very early in the piece. A lot of our customers are local customers. 
um, and they can't believe that their own produce, their own techniques, their own gastronomy can be elevated to a level that is world-class. And let's elevate it and let's play with it. With this new cuisine, is not only tasty and looks colourful and it's, it's healthy, but it's actually nutritional. To learn more about Chef Cito's engagement with Recipes for Change and how to cook some tasty Pacific recipes, visit Chef Cito's page at ifad.org. There, you will also find Chef Cito's full interview. Coming up, we're back with Raul Antal talking youth empowerment. Remember to tune in to other episodes of Farms, Food, Future. In episode two, we have news on climate and farming in developing countries. In episode four, we talk gender. And in episode six, we have a special episode where we speak to IFAD's president, Joubert Ongbu. Back now to this episode where we're focusing on youth, and we asked Raoul Antao about the question of youth empowerment. For him, it is all about dialogue and collaboration. The, the question of empowerment is so important. Last year, IFAD uh, released uh, its flagship publication, the Rural Development Report, which uh, specifically took into consideration young people. In fact, the entire report is on young people. And there were three keywords that sort of came out, is that we need to consider the elements of productivity, connectivity, and giving young people agency. So. In order to become more productive and connected, young people in rural areas must have the power to make decisions in their own best interest. And this is where the question of empowerment really comes into, into play. For example, young rural women, their sense of agency cannot be developed only by increasing their resources and social positions. Their voice and aspirations also need to be addressed by starting to change the social norms. And right now, as it stands today, one of the things that has also come out from the Rural Youth Action Plan that IFAD launched last year was to establish some sort of mechanism where we could have a deeper dialogue with youth. You know, this principle of nothing about youth without youth. We started to set out to understand first, well, if it's nothing about youth and without youth, then we should try and open up uh, the discussions to understand what they think of how we should engage with them. So over the course of the last year, we organized about five regional workshops with our partners that we've already worked with, with young people in the field from different contexts and background, indigenous youth, agribusiness oriented uh, uh, young people, some are just producers. And we started having these discussions to try and ask one question, is that how can we develop a mechanism in IFA to have a meaningful engagement with young people? So as I was saying, a lot of last year we spent sort of discussing with young people through these five regional workshops. And they identified in these workshops some critical points which came out, which we have now sort of started to take into consideration. And I can run through a few of them right now. But uh, one of the things that they said is, you know, the potential to engage grassroots youth must be done as considering youth as equal partners and not merely beneficiaries. The second was inclusivity, to ensure that we capture also the heterogeneity of young people, knowing that they're very much different based on context. The next that they brought up was innovation. And as we've already been discussing, this is where we echo in the same choir, 
but uh, there's a need to harness this innovation potential, particularly uh, from young people's ideas um, for, for how we look at socioeconomic advancement. And the last one that they brought out was the issue of partnerships. So I think right now, IFAD's in the process of still positioning itself to try and understand, okay, well, we've heard what young people are saying. We can see what's happening out in the world. We can see what's happening on a regional level. We can see what's happening on a local level and a global level. How do we start to develop some sort of mechanism which is considerate of all these issues? And I think that's where we are today. But uh, we are hopeful by the end of this year, we'll have a much clearer idea of what exactly we will be building in our, in our ambition to really empower young people in our programs. Thank you to Raul Antal and IFAD's youth team. I'm Julia Guimarães, and this is Farms Food Future. You can hear more podcasts by going to www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. Coming up, Thales Mendonça, Brazilian organic farmer and Inofo secretary and Recipes for Change chef, Bela Gil. We have now landed in my homeland, Brazil, for our last stop before heading home. Thales Mendonça is an organic farmer from Curitiba in the south of Brazil. He is also part of the Intercontinental Network of Organic Farmers Organizations and panelist at this year's Farmers Forum, which took place in Rome at IFAD earlier in the year. Thales had to reshape his farming business due to the COVID pandemic. The city's fresh produce open market has been closed for the past month and a half. Let's hear what solutions Talish found to keep his farm alive. I had changed my way of commercialization to an online platform, sending the product list to my clients by WhatsApp and website, receiving the orders, organizing them in an Excel sheet, and then bringing to the city in a system like delivery. It's been five times more work for me, but at least in times that most of the people has stopped their work, my farm business has increased a lot. Lots of people are looking and asking for organic food. But this is my reality because I'm a young farmer and I can manage the technology like WhatsApp and website and Excel and I have connection in my farm. But lots of older farmers here, they are losing their production. They have no more market access. Some some cases the roads are closed. They they lose the the city hall support and things like this. We are trying to help them, but there are lots of work or few available time right now, to be honest. And Talish, what do you think are some of the biggest threats to farmers in developing countries right now? Well, we have many, many different realities in the developing countries around the world, but looking more to myself, to Brazilian reality, some Latin American countries, we have a very big uh, issue about land access and land grabbing. Our country didn't do land reform yet. We need more technical assistance. Uh, we also need some technical training. And of course, always the biggest challenge is the market access. How to access the whole value chain with a better payment, with a better price. 
As a member and Latin America representative of INOFU, the Intercontinental Network of Organic Farmers Organizations, your mission is to advocate for organic farmers' rights. What is the role of youth in this mission? We, the youth, we have a big and very important role in this mission, looking now into the future. We need more space at all levels of the discussion about farming and organic farming. Because normally when we go to forums, conference, symposium, and these events, lots of people in organizations are talking about the youth, the young people, but we are not there. We don't have good representative in this space. Normally five or 10% of the audience or the participants, but we must be present to talk by ourselves, to show our realities what we do face daily in our places and of course to learn with the more experienced and elderly people all their knowledge and experience are very precious and important to us the youth to keep our agriculture activity and also as a member of inofu you took part in ifad's seventh farmers forum this year why are events like this important it was my first time in ifad's farmers forum this year in italy and it was a very important for me as a young farmer to bring and to raise our young uh, farmers' reality. But bigger than that, the Farmers' Forum is a very rich and valuable space of the discussions and dialogue between different farmers' organizations in the whole world and IFAD, where we can share our challenges, give our inputs, opinions, and suggestions to IFAD's programs and projects. The message that all the members bring with themselves can reverberate within IFED staff and also outside among all other partners around the world. And of course, all the network that we built there, lots of people and organizations that we meet, we change contacts and it's very important to, to keep constructing this worldwide farming network. At the Farmers Forum, you mentioned that technology plays a major role in your road market project when it comes to getting local youth involved. Why? The road market is a project or work that goes among our organization that calls Hedge Ecovida Network. It's a PGS, Participatory Guarantee Systems, that's an NGO and organic certification body. After that, we had identified the difficulty to sell the products from the farmer's production with a fair price. And then we created this road market. It's like a route that cross the three states in the south of Brazil with a truck that goes to different stations. We call it stations, but that's a place that the truck just goes. At each station, we have a responsible person that manages it and buying products from another stations and offering, selling their products to, the, to this road market. It's like farmers selling to farmers with a fair price, not high, but not low. And the products are selling the territorial markets and short circuits of food markets without a big chain to reach the final client. So it's, it's very good uh, initiative to all the society, to the farmers, to the clients, to the logistics and everything. And all the communication flows with the technology, managing the smartphones and internet devices like clouds, Google Drive, uh, WhatsApp, and apps to facilitate the, the stock and everything that we need. And finally, Talish, 
Why should young people become farmers? Well, it's a very good question. It's a very rewarding work. When we become organic farmers, we connect ourselves to the earth. We listen to the whole environment, to the soil, to the plants, the animals. We understand the natural cycle of life and keep working together with it. You work for yourself, for your family and for the planet. In times that we need to take care of our planet and our society, it's a very noble work. In another way, it's a very good income or profit activity that instead of working for a big company or by yourselves in a big cities with high level of stress, you can work by yourself in your own place with your activity, time management, drinking pure water without paying, having clean food without any chemicals, and the life quality increases highly. And there is no money for sure that pay for that. All around the world, young farmers such as Talish are struggling with COVID's health and economic effects. When the pandemic reached Brazil and open markets in Rio de Janeiro were suspended, Chef Bela Gil launched an appeal through social media for people to keep supporting local producers by ordering their produce via WhatsApp. More on that in just a moment. Bella Gil joined our Recipes for Change campaign this year in the midst of the pandemic. She's a cookbook author, activist, TV host, and chef. She believes that food can change the world, and so do we. We asked her about the importance of supporting smallholder agricultural producers. Well, I think it's always important to support smallholder producers uh, because of many reasons, and I can list uh, at least uh, three here. And um, I think the first one is because 80% of the food that comes to our plate comes from smallholder farmers. Uh, that is a global statistic. So, of course, there it could be more or less. But um, so if we want to keep eating food, we have to support them. <laughs> and um, secondly, I think that small farmers, they usually better protect our biodiversity. They preserve the fauna and the flora. Um, they better protect uh, the land and the soil, maybe especially for Brazil, because we have a huge problem of concentration of land here. Uh, 46% of the arable land is in the hands of 1% of the rural population. So the big farmers, they have these huge extensions of monocrops that they, to produce it, to, to make it, they have to devastate a huge amount of native forest and land to produce a few kinds of, of food, especially corn and soy that are sold as commodities. So I think that protecting small farmers, uh, we are able to, to keep them in their land, uh, producing good, clean and fair food and also helping to protect nature, to protect biodiversity, that it's essential to human life. So that's why I believe that not only during uh, the pandemic crisis, yeah, not only in this, uh, in this sense we have to protect them, but always, because they are the ones that really put the food in our plate. And do you believe that people will be more aware of the importance of farmers once the crisis is resolved? 
Well, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I think that this crisis is putting a magnifying glasses in every aspect of our private and social lives, uh, good and bad ones. But, um, and, and fortunately, farmers are being great warriors and they are risking their own lives to keep putting foods in our plate. They, are, uh, they keep producing, they keep selling, they, they, they keep their jobs. And um, so I believe that some people uh, are recognizing this gesture, uh, which are essential to our survival. And um, maybe after this crisis, people will be willing to better understand the fragilities of uh, small farmers and will invest in education, technologies, and sustainable practice in rural communities to secure their lives and their work. So that's what I think, that's what I hope. Maybe I'm being a little bit optimistic here, but that's what I believe. You are also engaged with youth and nutrition programs. First of all, could you tell us a bit more about Bella Infancia, one of the child nutrition programs you lead? Uh, sure, uh, Bella Infancia is a project that I've, uh, I've been doing for a few years here in Brazil. And I go to um, public and private schools to teach children um, about food. Uh, it's a food education program um, against, of course, the huge, the other kind of pandemic that we have right now in the world, which is obesity, uh, especially in young people. So I think that educating children about what they eat, about uh, uh, the impacts of uh, the food choices they, they make for their own health and for the health of the environment, it's a good way to prevent um, obesity in the future. So that's the goal. Uh, that's one of the goals of the, the project. And it's very, very nice to see the children, um, how they are interested in this subject. Um, and uh, one other goal of this project, it's actually to put the food education uh, in the curriculum, food education and gardening, because I think they really go together uh, in the curriculum of public and private schools, because that's not uh, obligatory uh, in Brazil. And I think it's essential. And what do you think are some of the challenges the Brazilian youth is facing and will face as a consequence of the virus in terms of nutrition, education, and even employment? Oh, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a challenging question because I believe that people are uh, already facing a lot of um, challenges uh, in regards to nutrition, education, and, and employment. So as I said before, this crisis is only putting a magnifying glasses and we are now seeing uh, and, and feeling um, all the, um, um, the social uh, inequality uh, that we have here, inequality of opportunities, and but... I believe that the challenges will be uh, will be the same, but at least I think that we have hope that the youth will understand that this kind of the, the way that we've been practicing uh, practicing um, food production and um, education 
uh, it's not enough, it's not good, we have to change. We have to change this, we have to improve it. So I believe that the consequence will be that the youth will understand that uh, coming back to normal, it's not enough because the normal, it's really what's uh, screwing up everything, you know? So I believe that the answer is, it's hope in the youth population. Thanks to Chef Bella Gil and welcome on board. You can listen to Bella Gil's full interview at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change. Don't forget to check out her lockdown-friendly recipe in our last episode and all of our Cooking on a Tin Can recipes under our Recipes for Change page. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at efad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. Brian Thompson will be back in the driving seat at the end of July with more news fresh from the farm, this time on that hot potato issue. We're talking livestock. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for farmers. From me, Julie Guimarães, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.